core of what we've uh, been trying to do at Hope Fellowship from the very beginning was not simply to plant a church in the city, uh, but to uh, see and encourage and to serve other churches being planted around the city as well. So we've been giving our time and our energy and, and whatever we have to try to just bless other planters as they come to the city, to, to offer our experience, to offer our failures, uh, and to say, let us serve you whatever we, we can as churches are planted. We've been excited these past few months to have a team uh, joining us, particularly in the 9 a.m. service, who've moved here to plant a church in Medford, a team planting a church called Redemption Hill Church, moved here this summer. They've been uh, attending with us, serving with us, as they've been laying the groundwork for this new church. And we're excited of how God has graciously been at work these past month of growing a core group, growing, you know, committed people who will say, this is my church. I will serve and engage there as this church is planted in Medford. And so they will actually meet uh, for their first time beginning weekly services on Sunday, April the 10th over in Medford Square. um, Just right off of I-93, Route 16, uh, there is um, a a dance studio called Spring Step right next to the town hall, the Hyatt Place Hotel. And so this morning, we're blessed to have Tanner, who's the lead pastor of that group, uh, come and share with us from the scriptures. And one, we do it simply because uh, we want to hear from the word, and so we want to let Tanner share with us. But two, also, that you might be aware of what's going on there. And there's several reasons we'd like for you to be aware of this. One, that, that we would pray together for that first service and those first services, that first, those first few months. So would you pray uh, for the service beginning April 10th um, at Redemption Hill Church? But also so that you may have friends, um, family members, neighbors who live near Medford or West Somerville or you know, Arlington or Malden or beyond, that you might want to point them there and say, Hey, would you consider this would be a great church for you to attend Redemption Hill Church? And then finally, you yourself might consider being a part of that. We would love to see some people who call Hope Home who would consider being a part of that. To go and say, hey, I would like to go and and be a a core part of that church as it begins. So maybe geographically you're close to there. And we'd love to point you there. Maybe you say, you know what, I'd like to just be a part of something at at its beginning. And and the very groundwork of a church being started. So maybe that's of interest to you. So we encourage you to consider being a part of that. You can check out more by going to their church website, redemptionhillchurch.com. If you also go to our church website, on the front page, there's a link there that will take you right to their site. And then finally, following the service, Tanner will be here at the front. If you'd like to talk with him, ask him questions uh, to know more about their church. So, Tanner, thanks for sharing with us this morning. Thanks, Curtis. Uh, just uh, let me, let me uh, just say a quick word of thanks on behalf of the leadership team and all those who are now coming and becoming a regular part of Redemption Hill. Um, just, just thank you for your support. I hope you know how rare this is. I mean, Curtis has been such a friend to us. About four years ago, we prayed about the possibility of moving to Boston to plant a church. And Curtis spent some time with us, took us out to lunch. It was about an hour of him answering all of our questions before I think he even was able to take the first bite of his sandwich. Um, so that was, that's just a picture of who Curtis is and, and, and who you are as a church. I mean, um, there are probably a handful of churches across this country that would say, hey, you know someone in West Somerville? Uh, send them to Redemption Hill. Well, best as I understand it, like, that's West Somerville, like right there. So, um, so it's just extremely generous that you all are praying for us, that you're supporting us and, and, uh, in a variety of ways. And, and we're extremely blessed to have a partner like Hope that is encouraging us and helping us in so many ways. Uh, in fact, it's, it's our plan to be here for a really long time. So this is just uh, the, the beginning of a, of a beautiful partnership. I've been reading in Second Samuel recently, and, and it's interesting. When David became king, it says he was 30 years old. 
And uh, he reigned for 40 years. And so um, I'm not sure this is spirit-inspired application in my life, but um, I just turned 30 in December. And so I'm, I'm praying that God gives me 40 years in Medford. And uh, Curtis, I believe, is somewhere around maybe uh, 10 years older than I am. And uh, so I'm praying God gives Curtis 30 years, and, um, and uh, at least here at Hope Fellowship. I'm not sure if we'll, like, just kill the church at that point if we're still preaching. We'll probably have to, like, seek asylum in Maine or something. But, um, but no, we're, we're very, very thankful for you. And thankful for your prayers and support. If you, if you have a Bible, open up to Mark chapter 3. You know that we've been studying through the gospel of Mark on Sunday mornings. And this morning we're in Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 35. And as you turn there, I want to read a quote to you from C.S. Lewis out of his classic work, Mere Christianity. In Mere Christianity, Lewis seeks to persuade People of the folly and inconsistency of claiming that Jesus was a good moral teacher and yet would still reject him as not being God. Lewis has a famous argument there. It's a, it's a, he, he poses this trilemma, if you will, that we must either accept Jesus as Lord and God or we must reject him as a liar or even a lunatic. And this is what Lewis says in his work, Mere Christianity. He says this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it seems to me obvious that whether he, that, that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. And so whether you realize it or not this morning, every person on the planet must deal with the person and work of Jesus Christ. They must respond to him in one way or another. Some will maybe even respond by just saying, he's not worth my responding to, my searching out. But then others who actually take an honest reading of the Gospels, which if you're exploring Christianity here this morning, I would encourage you, please, read the Gospels. Know what Jesus is saying, what the claims that he's making, the works that he's performing. Because an honest reading of the Gospels does not leave us with the option that he was just a good moral teacher. That he was a brilliant philosopher who had uh, great things to teach us about the way to live our lives. No, Jesus leaves no room for neutrality. We must either accept him as Lord or we must dismiss him as a liar or even a lunatic. 
And so what we have in Mark chapter 3 are a series of snapshots from the life of Christ. And what Mark does is he, he, he builds this story to show different responses to the person of Christ. And what he's going to teach us is this, is that true disciples, if we are to identify with and follow Jesus, must embrace all of who Jesus is. True disciples, if we're to identify with Jesus, must embrace all of who Jesus is. And as we walk through this chapter this morning in verses 7 through 35, what we're going to see is that we must accept the person of Christ. We, we must accept the works of Christ. And we must accept the will of Christ if we are to be true followers of Jesus Christ. And so what is going on here in Mark chapter 3 is that Mark has, has opened with Jesus' public ministry. After he was baptized, after he was tempted in the wilderness, he begins his public ministry of proclaiming that the kingdom of God is near, that the kingdom of God is at hand. And he's, he's calling people to repent and believe the gospel, to follow him with their lives. But not only that, he's going around and he's, he's healing people. Lame men are walking a man with a withered hand is, is healed in the first part of Mark chapter 3. But, but, but not only that, Jesus' uh, way of doing things really disturbs the religious leaders of his day. You see, Jesus did not fit into their fabricated framework of what a religious leader should look like. They had these man-made rules of, of, of what you could and could not do on the Sabbath. Even to the point where they would say, look, you, you can't heal someone on the Sabbath. That's not God's way of going about things. And so we, we find in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, here's the context. It says, after they had numerous confrontations with Jesus, the religious leaders, the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. In other words, the religious leaders of the day put their heads together to, to formulate a plan to destroy Jesus, to take him out. And so it's here that we find in, in verse 7 that Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea. Now we can safely assume that Jesus did not withdraw out of fear. He is, he was and is God. So he's not withdrawing out of fear, but he's withdrawing because his time had yet, not yet come. It wasn't time for Jesus to, to lay down his life as he has the authority even over his life. No one was going to take his life in one sense. He was going to lay it down for the people. And so it wasn't his time yet, so he withdraws to the sea. And what happens, we find in verse 7, is that a great crowd followed. Now, what do we learn about the crowd? Well, number one, we learn where, where they come from. Look at this, verses 7 and 8. A crowd, a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea, and J Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. Basically, they came from all over Israel to see Jesus, to get in on what he had to offer. But then the, the, the larger and the more important question is why have they come? Why did they come from all of these regions to see Jesus? Verse 8 tells us, says that when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. 
You see, it's probably our assumption that these crowds were coming to Jesus by the sea because they were embracing him and his mission. But that's not necessarily the case. In fact, Mark cast the crowd in, in the light of wanting what Jesus had to offer. They wanted what he could give, what he could provide, healing from their diseases and illnesses and sicknesses. This is why the crowd came. We, we must not assume that the crowd understood and embraced what the unclean spirits let's, uh, knew of, of Jesus. Let's, let's continue to read. It says in verse 9, it says, And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirit saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And so we can't assume that the crowd knows and understands and embraces what the unclean spirits could recognize. That Jesus is the Son of God. See, this is why Mark has written this gospel. The the purpose statement is the very first verse of the book. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The crowds did not necessarily embrace this in Jesus. They wanted what Jesus had to offer. It's interesting in verse 12, it's important to understand this. It says that he strictly ordered the unclean spirits not to make him known. You say, why on earth would he do this? This is what some New Testament callers the messianic secret. Why would, why would Jesus tell the unclean spirits and when he heals people to tell them, hey, don't just go around and telling everyone about this. Why is that? Well, for, for probably at least three reasons. Number one, it would be the wrong strategy for Jesus. You say, you say what do you mean? Like, if, if, if when we open uh, our church to the public on April 10th and we start having services, people come from Melrose and Wakefield and Danvers and, and, and Lynn and all these surrounding communities, uh, we'll be jacked up, right? I mean, we'll love it. The more the merrier. Come, uh, bring the great crowds to us. But Jesus seems to have a different approach. You see, he knew that if the crowd simply came for what he had to offer, that it would in many ways prohibit his ministry. It says in the Gospels that he couldn't travel openly from place to place because the crowds were just crushing him. And so, first, it would be the wrong strategy. Secondly, the people had a wrong expectation. People thought that the Messiah would be this king who would set up a a militaristic rule, a political kingdom there in first century Israel. But Jesus' kingdom is is much different than that. So it was the wrong strategy, wrong expectation, and and finally it was was the wrong time. See, there was so much more for Jesus to to accomplish in his mission. We're going to see that his strategy is is not to, to bring in the, the masses, so that he could kind of establish like the first mega church in first century Israel. No, Jesus' strategy was to gather a select group of, of, of people who he could invest in, teach them what it meant to live life in the kingdom of God, and then send them out to fulfill that mission. And so Jesus has a lot to accomplish in his mission. He, he, he has training to do, equipping to do, preaching to do, healing to do, and ultimately a brutal death to die on the cross for the sins of the world. And so this is why Jesus would make statements like this in verse 10 where, where he orders the unclean spirits not to make this known. Why? 
because it wasn't the time. So what about Jesus' strategy, right? I mean, this, this seems backwards to us. We, we would love that the great crowds would gather, but, but Jesus instead invests in a group, primarily a group of, of 12 men. This is what we see in verses 13 through 19. Read, read them with me if you will. It says, And Jesus went up on the mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed the twelve whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon, the Canaanian and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. See, what do we learn from these verses? Well, first off, we learn that it was Jesus' prerogative to pursue people. Jesus pursued people. This was backward from the the rabbis of his day. You see, most of the time, disciples would pursue a rabbi who they thought really understood and lived out the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the law of God. And so they they were interesting in connecting with rabbis who they thought could kind of help them further their agenda. But rather than waiting for disciples to see it in him, Jesus, the perfect fulfillment of God's law, instead pursues people. He goes out and he chooses 12, says whom he desired and appointed them. And in this we have a picture of the amazing initiating grace of God. Whether you realize it or not, when you weren't pursuing God, God was pursuing you. He's done it in sending his son, the incarnate God, Jesus Christ, to live a perfect life, die a cruel death, be raised again so that all who believe and follow him would have abundant and eternal life. God pursued us. Maybe he pursued you through a friend. Maybe he pursued you by uh, your family. I don't know what the case is for you. Maybe he's pursuing you right now. But, but, but Jesus pursued people. But we also notice that, that Jesus calls regular people. This is one thing that I love about Jesus. You have, a, you have a group of fishermen here, a tax collector. Nothing really special in the, in the, from, from the world's perspective about these men. In fact, in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, it says that these were ordinary, common, even uneducated men in the formal sense. If Jesus was here today, he wouldn't hop on the tee and take the red line down to Harvard Square and, and choose the intellectual elite from among us. Now, that's good news for people like me. <laughs> Jesus just chose ordinary people to fulfill his mission, in part to show that he's the one that's working, and he would be the one to get the glory. So Jesus chooses ordinary people, calling them to himself, The names in this passage are not as important as the number. The number 12 reflects the 12 tribes of Israel, the the Old Testament people of God. And what Jesus does in calling 12 disciples to be his intimate followers and carry out his mission is he's ushering in this this new people of God who will follow him and, and perform his works to the world. 
But then we, we also learn the purpose of discipleship. The purpose of following Jesus. What does it say in verses 14 and 15? Look, look back, if you will. It says, And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. There's a twofold purpose here. Did you see it? To be with Jesus and to be sent out by Jesus. First, to be with Jesus. You see, followers of Jesus want to follow Jesus because of Jesus. They recognize who he is. They recognize he's Lord and God. They want to be close to him. They want to be intimate with him. They're not just in it for what he has to offer like the crowds. And how many times do we, even as Christians, approach God in our prayers, in our, in our living with the attitude of, God, what's in it for me? In our prayers, sometimes we reduce God to, as if he's this cosmic ATM machine where we enter our request and we are simply interested in what he has to offer us. But true biblical discipleship is, is more interested in the, the giver than the gifts that he gives. A true disciple wants to know Christ, to be intimate with Christ, to follow Christ, to love Christ. This is why Jesus called disciples to follow him. I love what James Edwards says about this phrase. He says this, The simple prepositional phrase, to be with him, has atomic significance in the gospel of Mark. Discipleship is a relationship before it is a task. A who before a what. To be with Jesus is the most profound mystery of discipleship. From now on, his person and his work determine the existence of the twelve. So perhaps we could say it another way. A disciple's life is to be dominated by the person and the reality of Jesus Christ. For those who follow Jesus, he is ultimate reality. He is the ultimate relationship in our lives. More important than our girlfriend, boyfriend, spouse, fiance, best friend, it's Jesus. He is ultimate. This is, this is perhaps why, why Paul could say in Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To live is Christ. In other words, for Paul, Jesus was the dominant reality of his life. And so everything that Paul did was filtered through the lens of Jesus. Like these disciples, Jesus chose these disciples to be with him so that they might observe all that he did, so that they might hear his teaching, so they might be able to emulate everything that he did and said. So I might have asked you this, this morning, do you love Jesus? Do you regularly spend quality time with Jesus? Is he the most important relationship in your life? You see, being with Jesus is the foundation for everything that we would do for Jesus. It's the, it's the, it's the essential part of discipleship. But it's not the only thing that's essential. You see, the, the purpose of discipleship is not only to be with Jesus, but it's also to be sent out by Jesus. Did you see that in verses 14 and 15? So, so that they might be with him 
And he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. You see, it's not enough just to be with Jesus. We are also to be sent out by Jesus. And there's a twofold uh, dynamic to this. That we are to preach about who Jesus is and also perform good works in his name. You say, Tanner, um, you, you just lost me right there with that word preach. I know Curtis is gifted in that way. Dane's gifted. You're up here this morning. You're preaching. Um, I'm not really sure about that for me. Well, here, here's some good news, okay? Curtis does not have a sign-up list in the back with dates for the next you know, 20 Sundays waiting for you to sign up to be the preacher for that Sunday, all right? That's, that, that, that's not all preaching is. What is preaching? Preaching is the announcing, the proclaiming of news about Jesus Christ. So you don't have to be in front of 100 people, 200 people, to preach the good news about Jesus Christ. Perhaps it's over a cup of coffee with a friend, where you're able to share with them in 30 seconds or less. Man, you know what? For so long in my life, I thought it was about me pursuing God and, and trying to earn my way to God's approval. I thought it was about my works for God, that he would love me and, and accept me and, and my own righteousness. But I then discovered that it's not so much about what I can do for God, because I can never do enough to be accepted or please uh, God perfectly. But it's about what God has done for us, for me, through Jesus Christ. That through faith in him, through his perfect life, his sinless death for the penalty of my sin, by his resurrection, and now I can have abundant and eternal life. That's preaching the gospel. No matter what context it may happen. And, and guys, it's not that difficult. It's the simple gospel message that people need to hear. And so, disciples are sent out to preach about Jesus, but they're also to perform good works in his name. See, Peter summarizes the life of Christ in Acts chapter 10 by saying he went about doing good. Now, here's the really cool part. When we're on board with Jesus and his mission, every good work that we perform in his name speaks not only in that moment the message of love and, and hope and forgiveness that we, we know in Christ, but it actually speaks and point to something, points to something greater. It foreshadows the coming kingdom of God. Do you see that? So, so think about this. When we have Hope Cafe here at the church, we feed the hungry in our community. When we put on a food drive on April 2nd, actually Redemption Hill and, and Hope are going to partner together to pull this off, to, 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 feed, to, to fill uh, food banks around greater Boston so that the hungry might be fed. When we fight for the rights of the unborn and we promote a culture of life, what we are doing in all of those instances is foreshadowing what the coming kingdom of God is going to look like. It's going to be like. Read Revelation 20 and 21. The new heavens and new earth comes down. No more death. No more hunger. No more pain. No more crying. And so we are not only to declare the truth about Jesus, but we're actually to display the truth about Jesus with our life. The change that he's brought to us through his grace. So it's, it's about being with Jesus and being sent out by Jesus. It must be both. This, is, this, is, this was 
This was the rhythm of discipleship, these 12 with, with Jesus. They were with Jesus and they were sent out by Jesus. And I would propose to you that this should be the rhythm of our life as well. We should continually be with Jesus, spend quality time with Jesus, and then we should continually be sent out by Jesus as well. It's as almost as if Jesus says, hey, take what I give you and you go give it away. Have you received mercy and grace from Jesus? Go, give it away. Have you received forgiveness and a second chance? Go, give it away. Have you received compassion and joy at the feet of Jesus? Go, give it away. We inhale all of who Jesus is so that we might exhale it to the world with our good works and good deeds and love. See, it's so tempting for us to get this out of balance. Oftentimes we think mission is just for super disciples. You know, just for the really, the really, the ones that really walk closely with Jesus. But the New Testament doesn't have a category for a disciple who is only interested in being with Jesus and, and not also being sent out by Jesus. So, so, so is your is your is your walk with Christ out of balance? I'm sure for some of us in the room, man, we love to be with Christ. We love to open His Word each day. We love to pray. We love to gather with the saints to worship God together to sing these awesome songs of praise. But at the end of the day, and perhaps at the end of our lives, we haven't done much for Jesus. We haven't engaged those around us. We haven't displayed good works, the truth of the gospel. Then for others of us, there's the temptation to do so much for Jesus, be so busy for Jesus. Let me just confess, this is a great temptation of a pastor. It's one I face every day. To do so much for Jesus that I neglect being with Jesus. So the purpose of discipleship is both. That we would be with Jesus and that we would be sent out by Jesus. At at Redemption Hill, we like to say it this way. We exist to glorify God by living out his mission. That's being sent out by Jesus. As a community transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's being with Jesus. At Hope Fellowship, you like to say it this way. Perhaps, hopefully, you're familiar with this. Hope Hope Fellowship Church exists to glorify God by inviting people into a relationship with Jesus Christ and into a community of people who passionately love God. That's being with Jesus. Actively love people and who are being equipped to become multiplying disciples to reach the nations. That's being sent out by Jesus. So Hope Fellowship, that's why you're here. That's why you exist as followers of Christ, to be with Jesus and to be sent out by Jesus. So we must embrace the person of Christ if we're to be true disciples. Not just what he gives, but all of who he is. But not only that, we're not only to embrace the person of Christ, we're also to embrace the works of Christ. This is what we find in in verses 20 and following, is that disciples of Christ embrace the works of Christ. Now, we we discover the shocking reality in verses 20 and following. You have two groups of people. And what Mark is doing here, you're going to notice that verses 20 20 and 21 speak of the the family of of Jesus. And to our great surprise, they're not totally on board with his agenda. But then in verse 22, Mark jumps into 
this episode of the religious leaders of the day also denying, uh, clearly denying the works of Christ. And then he picks up the family back in verse 31. So what Mark is doing here, I believe, obviously learning from other scholars, is that Mark is using a literary device, what we might call a dovetail. He's sandwiching information, picking up on the story later in verse 31 that it begins in verse 20, to show that both of these groups of people who really should have got it, they both are actually in opposition to Jesus, both his family and the religious leaders of the day. So look in verse 20. It says that after he called the disciples, then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. There's the crowd again. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. The brothers, sisters of Jesus, didn't see him as the Son of God right away. In fact, they thought, man, the, the Jesus is so consumed by this work and the crowds are pressing in, man, he's not even eating. He must, be, he, he must be crazy. He must be out of his mind. But then the, the, the situation really goes from bad to worse. Look in verse 22. It says, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. So, so what you have here in, in verse Verse 22 is a twofold charge by the religious leaders of the day, the scribes. They say that, number one, Jesus is possessed by Satan. And even beyond that, number two, the works that he's doing, the healings, the miraculous healings that he's performing, the source of that, the ability, is actually coming from demonic influence. Now, in verse... 23 and following, we have Jesus pointing out the absurdity of their logic. It's, it's almost as if we could say, hey, Jesus the logician, enter into the room and defend yourself. And this is what he says in verses 23 and following. And he called, to the, called them to him and said in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Did you catch Jesus' argument here? He's saying, look, your claims are logically absurd. Verse 24, a nation at war with itself cannot stand. Verse 25, a house at war with itself will not stand. Jesus points out the absurdity of, of Satan working for his own demise. It says in verse 26, if this is his, if his, Agenda, he's going to bring his own end. So it's not from internal strife that, that Satan would be working for Satan's demise. What you have in the Gospels when Jesus is going around healing people is not internal strife. It's a contest. And Jesus clearly points this out in verse 27 when he says, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods... Okay, think Satan there. 
unless he first binds the strong man, and he, then indeed he may plunder his house. Think Jesus. Jesus is saying what you have is a cosmic contest. And when I'm going around healing people and restoring life and giving sight and causing lame men to walk, what I'm doing is I am binding the strong man because I am the stronger man. Curtis, would you mind to get up and flex a little for us? So Jesus flexes his missiological muscle and he says, look, I'm the stronger man. I'm the one that's binding Satan to, to, to defeat his works. This is what 1 John 3 says, right? The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's works. And he's not only going to ultimately do it through healing people just in his earthly ministry. He's going to do it ultimately through his death and resurrection. He takes Satan out. Satan no longer has victory over us. He no longer has power over us. We can be free from our sin, free to walk in newness of life. And so after Jesus uncovers the absurdity of their logic, he then makes a statement that some people have called among the most awesome words he has ever recorded as uttering. You say, why is that? Well, I think you'll see. Because of the radical grace that is found in verse 28 and the radical stunning justice is found in verse 29. Let's look at verse 28 first. He says, truly, to grab people's attention. He, he does this often in the Gospels. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man in whatever blasphemies they utter. Let's stop there. Here's radical grace. If you'll do me a favor, think about your week this week. Zoom out. Think about your past month. Zoom out a little further. There. Think about your life. All of your pride, all of your envy, all of your lust, all of your covetousness, all of your attempts at self-glorification, Jesus says it can all be forgiven through me. (laughs) That's good news. That's the gospel. But then in verse 28 following, in 29, actually, he says, But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they had said he has an unclean spirit. And so if, if verse 28 provides this great promise, verse 29 provides a great and serious and grave warning to those who reject Jesus and his work. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. What on earth does this mean? It's been interpreted in many different ways throughout the history of the church, debated. But, but I think from the context of Mark chapter 3, as well as the, just the context of the canon of Scripture, we can, we can understand blasphemy of the Holy Spirit as uh, the, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit involves a fixed and willful rejection of the Holy Spirit's witness to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Well, let, me, let, me, let me read that again. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit involves a fixed and willful rejection of the Spirit's witness to the person and work of Jesus Christ. You say, why is this unforgivable? Why would this be an eternal sin? Well, the Spirit points to 
who Jesus is and what he's done, that he's the son of God, that he's the Lord of all the earth. To reject the Spirit's work is to put ourselves in a position where we're beyond faith and repentance. Because it's by the Spirit and his testimony, his work in our hearts, that we're able to believe the gospel and repent, which is a, 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 a biblical word in the church word, just to say we, we're, we're changing our mind, we're changing our lives, we're following Jesus now. To, to willfully and, and to reject the Spirit's work in a fixed way is to, to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. Now, now, let me say a few things. This is a serious and grave warning. If you're here this morning and, and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as, as Savior and Lord, you've never decided to follow him with your life, to, to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus, then I would encourage you, pray hard. Ask God to reveal to you the truth about Jesus Christ. To willfully reject him has eternal consequences. But, even in this passage, we don't find Jesus making the claim that even the scribes have, have, have committed this sin necessarily. Perhaps they were in that place or nearing that place in their willful and fixed rejection of Christ. But it doesn't even say that they were there yet. And, for those of you in this room, if, if, you're, if you're worried about this, man, have I, have, I, have, I, have, I, have I blasphemed against the Holy Spirit? If you're worried about that, chances are you haven't. Okay? The, 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 the encouragement to all is to see who Jesus is, to repent and believe in him. All who do that have what verse 28 talks about, forgiveness of all their sins. So worry, if you're worried about it, that's probably a good indication that you're not guilty of it. But, but, but then also, the New Testament talks about grieving the Holy Spirit. So, there's, so we, we do grieve the Holy Spirit when we don't live as God wants us to. But it's not the same thing. It's not the, grieving the Spirit is not the same thing as blaspheme, blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. So I, I, I hope... I hope that uh, you're encouraged by verse 28 and that you walk away with, with a serious warning of verse 29, especially if you're outside of Christ today. Consider what Jesus says. But probably most of us here in this room today are not potentially in danger of blaspheming against the Holy Spirit. But, but here's the question I want to ask you. The scribes rejected the person and the works of Jesus Christ. They, they even attributed, they went so far as to attribute his work to Satan. So, so, so probably most of us in here today are not attributing the work of the Spirit and the Spirit of Christ, what, what Jesus is still doing in the world today. We're not attributing that to Satan. We're not blaspheming against the Spirit. But, but, but let me ask you this. Do you love the works of God? Do you desire to see him at work in your life and, and in those around you? On a daily basis, do you see the grace and mercy of God? Can you, throughout your week, point and say, man, God's doing that. He gave me this opportunity to have this conversation with this person. He's at work all around us. And so a great question to ask yourself and even to ask 
someone who you're close to, maybe a, a friend, maybe a, maybe a spouse, maybe a, a classmate, maybe a, a fellow church member, is this. How have you seen God at work this week? So make no mistake, God is at work. Jesus says in John 5, the, the Father is always at work, and, and I too am at work. So, so God is always at work. Disciples don't only embrace the person of Christ, they also embrace the works of Christ. I love what Psalm 111 says. Actually, turn with me, if you would. Psalm, the book of Psalms is, is about right in the middle of your Bible. And let's read Psalm 111 uh, together. Re- read along with me, if you will, this great psalm on the works of God. Keeping in mind that it's our duty and our joy to see God at work. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Let's pause. Do you study the works of God? Are your antennas up throughout the week? You want to see the works of God? Oh, they're great. He's at work. Let me just back up, okay? I'm sorry. We're going to get stuck on verse 2 here. Um, Every time you walk through the doors of this church, you are experiencing, you are actually a part of the great works of God. Just eight years ago, there wouldn't have been enough people to fill up these first two rows here in this church. Now the place is packed. We have three services. God is doing a great work in and through Hope Fellowship Church. Praise the Lord. Do you see him at work? Do you study his works? Verse 3. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. We should be glad for that. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy to be formed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people. He has commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Do you, do you love the works of God? Do you see him at work all around you? Let me, let me just encourage you. If you're not consistently seeing God at work, pray and ask God to show you how he's at work. Walk with him. Be with Jesus. Be sent out by Jesus. Get involved in his mission. Ask him to work. You're going to start to see your eyes. The Spirit will open your eyes to see the works of God all around you. And here, here, here's another beautiful part about it. When this happens, this will free you from the boring, monotonous Christian life that we too often live. The works of God, they're all around us. Disciples of Christ embrace the person of Christ, the works of Christ, and finally we see in verses 31 through 35, disciples also embrace the will of Christ. Let's read these verses together as Jesus encounters his family again. This is what it says. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. 
And a crowd was sitting around him and they said, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about those who sat around him, Jesus often does this in the Gospels for emphasis, to grab people's attention. This is what he said. Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. A couple of observations real quick. Number one, Jesus is not disrespecting his family here. Jesus is simply pointing out the, 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 the more significant relationship in life. And that's the spiritual relationship of being connected to him. So, so Jesus says, look, if you want to be in with me, and what happens here, actually you have this physical picture. The, Jesus' mother and brothers are on the outside of the house. His disciples, his followers, those who are actually embracing his person, works, and will, they're on the inside. If you want to be in with Jesus, it's not enough to accept his person, embrace his person and his works. We must also embrace his will. We must also perform and do his will. I love what 19th century British pastor Octavius Winslow, he's just got a smooth name too, Octavius. I love, I love what Octavius Winslow says about true discipleship. He says, the religion of the Lord Jesus is only valuable as its power is experienced in the heart. The religion of the Lord Jesus is only valuable as its power is experienced in the heart. So it's not enough to intellectually assent to the truth about Jesus, his, his person and his works. True disciples experience his power in our hearts. He changes our will. He gives us the strength to live out and follow his commands. True disciples then now produce the fruit of the Spirit, whereby we show that we belong to him. We are in the family. And so I hope this morning that you'll be challenged to to ask and answer the question, do I embrace the person of Christ? Do I embrace the the works of Christ? Do I embrace the will of Christ? There's no doubt that all of us here in this room, beginning with me, struggle with sin. We battle with sin. 1 John 1 says, if we say we're without sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. So perhaps we can be encouraged that Jesus is the stronger man. And that when we submit to him, when we are consistently with him and being sent out by him, when we submit to his work in our lives and pursue his will, that whatever sin that you're struggling with consistently, persistently, that Jesus can can work in your life to free you from that sin. To consistently walk in holiness rather than unrighteousness. This is a benefit of of being in the family of God. And so as defined by Mark chapter 3, are you a true disciple of Christ? Do you embrace his person? 
Do you embrace his works, what he's done? Do you embrace his will? As we said and hopefully agree, every person on the planet necessarily responds to Jesus. Maybe they just dismiss him as not worthy of pursuit. But all of us will either in our lives accept him as Lord or reject him as something else, liar, lunatic, whatever the case may be. And so let me ask you the question, what do you make of Jesus Christ? Is he Lord and God? Is he worth giving up everything else to embrace and follow him with your life? I hope that you answer that question in the affirmative. But to close, I would pose that the question, what we make of Christ is perhaps not even the best question. In another essay, C.S. Lewis has this to say about asking that question. He says this, What are we to make of Christ? There is no question of what we can make of him. It is entirely a question of what he intends to make of us. You must accept or reject the story. The things he says are very different from what any other teacher has said. Others say this is the truth about the universe. This is the way you ought to go. But he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. He says, no man can reach absolute reality except through me. Try to retain your own life and you will be inevitably ruined. Give yourself away and you will be saved. He says, if you are ashamed of me, if, if when you hear this call, you turn the other way, I will also look the other way when I come again as God without disguise. If anything, whatever is keeping you from God and from me, whatever it is, throw it away. Come to me. Everyone who is carrying a heavy load, I will set that right. Your sins, all of them are wiped out. Do not be afraid. I have overcome the whole universe. That is the issue. And so even as you ask the question, what do I make of Jesus Christ? Follow that up and ask yourself the question, what does he intend to make of you? Surely it's a disciple that loves to be with him and is sent by him to do his good works in the world. Let's pray. God, thank you so much. Thank you so much for this morning. Thank you so much for this church. Thank you so much for the beauty and the depth of your word. God, thank you for your grace to us that when we did not desire you and we were not pursuing you, you pursued us in the person and the works of your son. And so Lord, it's my prayer this morning that for those who are wrestling with Christianity, what it means to, to know Jesus, to follow Jesus, Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself to them and that you would show them that, that you are worthy, that you created them, that you love them, that you have a purpose for their lives and that, that you are worthy to, to be worshiped and praised and embraced as the Lord and God of, of all. Lord, for, for others of us who maybe know you, Lord, help us to not only embrace your person and your works, but also to embrace your will. For that's where abundance is found. And Lord, that's what we desire by your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.